0: Hi, I'm Lauren Gilger, co-host of the show, one of KJZZ's original productions. It's a program with news and features from across Phoenix and the state. You can find much more at theshow.kjzz.org. Here's today's episode.
1: Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5 in Phoenix. I'm Mark Brody.
0: And I'm Lauren Gilger. Coming up, why more states are passing paid family medical leave today.
1: And how policymakers in different states are approaching the issue of protecting kids from the harms posed by social media.
0: But first, officials in Tucson are bracing for street releases of migrants in their community as federal funding dries up at the end of March. It comes after an unprecedented effort to stave this off. Advocates have been working hard to shelter newly arrived migrants in Tucson. But now Pima County's migrant aid effort is facing a funding cliff, and county officials are sounding the alarm. Emily Bragel is covering the story for the Arizona Daily Star, and she's on the line now to tell us more. Thanks for coming back on the show, Emily.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: So county officials there are, are basically saying that we could soon be seeing Border Patrol agents releasing hundreds of migrants onto the street in, in Tucson every single day, right? I, I mean, how many?
2: They're saying it could be up to about 400 people a day. Of of course, that depends on how many migrants are arriving in the area, but at current levels, it could be about that many.
0: Wow. Okay. so tell us more about how this program, how this system works up until now, like how this migrant aid effort has been functioning in southern Arizona for quite some time now.
2: It's really been quite impressive and complex coordination between numbers of different groups, including Border Patrol, our local shelters uh, through religious organizations. And then since 2019, the county and to some extent the city have been involved in coordinating this, um, administering federal funding that started to come down in 2019 to support these efforts to provide really some basic shelter and respite for migrants arriving in the area. Uh, The alternative would is really migrants, including families, elderly people, being released onto the streets with really no resources, some not even knowing where they are, mm-hmm. having illnesses. And um, it, what what we've seen up till now is about, or recently, about a 1,000 migrants per day in this region are being released. That's including 500 in the Tucson area and 500 who are actually coming from Santa Cruz and Cochise County. And as part of this coordinated effort, state-funded buses have been helping to Transport Those migrants in the smaller border communities that would really struggle to shelter them themselves. They've been coming up to Tucson as well. So this is going to impact not only Tucson, but Cochise and Santa Cruz counties as well, who will no longer have that assistance. And so they are going to be overwhelmed with probably about 500 Per day in between those two counties being released.
0: Wow. So, as you kind of outlined there, like migrants who come in these situations don't typically stay in border communities like Tucson for long, right? Like they're usually often on their way if they get this kind of help
2: exactly yes normally within a day or two uh these uh, families or individuals are going on to families or sponsors within the interior of the country so there they'll have some place to be someone to help them kind of get oriented something as simple as having a place to charge your cell phone which which some of these families do have um also i should point out that 98% of families get have their own funding maybe through their their sponsors to travel to get mm-hmm. their bus ticket or plane ticket to their to their uh, families. But it's having that help, getting access to a computer, figuring out how to buy the plane tickets that they won't have going forward. And I should point out, this is slated to start in April as the funding, the federal funding they're relying on will run out at the end of March.
0: End of March. Okay. So talk a little bit more about the federal funding and the situation there, why this is happening now. Have lawmakers tried to extend this funding to solve this?
2: this this funding would have been extended as part of that recent border security package that was uh, co-sponsored by Kirsten Cinema uh, but failed i think that was a couple weeks ago with within hours of that legislation coming out we had gop legislators saying it's dead on arrival. It's going nowhere. Um, and while some felt that legislation was pro- problematic, it would have provided about, I think it was $1.4 billion in funding, uh, not just for our area, but throughout the country to support these migrant aid efforts and just help things run more smoothly. And really, many would say this this money is necessary to prevent a humanitarian crisis on a daily basis, especially in some of these border communities that just can't, uh, that can't handle those numbers on their own.
0: So Pima County officials now are are worried about this. They're looking at ways to mitigate the fallout, working with groups like Catholic Community Services. What are the potential sort of solutions here?
2: So we're going to see going forward what county officials think about devoting any level of, of local funding to this effort. Um, the county administrator, Jan Lesher, said she this is a federal issue and it should be federal funds that are helping communities deal with it. That said, county staff has proposed a couple possibilities that will be under discussion with the county the board of supervisors. And th- these contingency plans range from a really bare bones effort, maybe just providing a big tent, some signage and security there to something more robust that actually has people on staff there, food service, that on that higher end could cost maybe a million a month. That's much less than we're spending in the federal funding, which is about a million per week on this effort. Mm. But um, still, a million a month in county funds is significant. Jan Lesher, our county administrator, actually recommends against putting any local money towards this effort. Mm. So
0: will this impact, this kind of funding cliff impact similar efforts in other communities? Like there's a center kind of like this in Phoenix. There are, places like this in other border communities along the border, are we looking at a problem that could be much broader than what's happening in Tucson?
2: Yes. And I haven't done the reporting in Phoenix, but I imagine something similar is underway because uh, there's a similar kind of coordination with, I think it might be IRC in Phoenix, who also receives migrants released by Border Patrol. Mm-hmm. So I I, am, I imagine this conversation is happening in many places uh, in the borderlands. Um, and one thing I should mention is that the migrants who are released by Border Tro- Patrol, they have been screened and, and cleared for release. They're given a court date. Um, so technically, they have documentation, they are no longer undocumented. But once Border Patrol releases them, they are in the country legally. They've had their belongings searched, fingerprints. Um, they've gone through a screening process. So I think that's important to point out because there's definitely concern um, from, from some about security. But this is Border Patrol making the decision that these people are, are okay to be Released into the community.
0: Yeah, worth pointing out. All right, we'll leave it there for now. Emily Bragel, covering this story for the Arizona Daily Star, joining us from Tucson. Emily, thank you for coming back on. Thanks for your reporting here. I appreciate it.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: Arizona Democrats have introduced a bill that would create a paid family and medical leave system in our state. So a new mother could stay home with a newborn and be paid, or a son could stay home with an elderly parent who's sick and be paid. It's a long shot in a GOP-run state legislature, but there is growing momentum for paid leave measures around the country. Right now, without a statewide paid leave policy, we fall under the Federal Family and Medical Leave Act, which turns 31 this month. That means you're entitled to 12 weeks off to take care of a family member, and your, employee or your employer can't fire you, but they don't have to pay you for it either. And new data from the National Partnership for Women and Families show 75% of workers in Arizona don't have access to paid leave and 66% can't afford or can't access that FMLA coverage. I spoke with Sherita Gruberg with the National Partnership for Women and Families. More about it.
3: 31 years ago, we were in a very different place. It was really hard for our policymakers to conceive of a national program where workers could take time off of work to care for themselves or their loved ones and still have a job to return to. It took many years to get it across the finish line. and enacted into law. And now 31 years later, uh, it's hard to imagine a world without the FMLA. Mm -hmm. Um, We've had over 460 million leaves taken under this important protection.
0: Yeah, this was meant to be, it sounds like at the time, sort of a first step, like it wasn't supposed to be the end all be all when it came to family and medical leave, right?
3: Exactly. Um, It was never intended to be the end result. Um, It was just supposed to be a first step. And you can see that in terms of today, who has access to leave under the FMLA versus, you know, who just can't afford to take unpaid leave off for long periods of time.
0: Yeah, so tell us a little bit more about that. Like many people are left out of this equation. First of all, like you say because it's unpaid and most people cannot afford to take a lot of unpaid time off, but also there are
3: lots of people who don't even qualify for FMLA, right? Right. And so looking at Arizona in particular, Even unpaid leave under the Family and Medical Leave Act is inaccessible for 66% of Arizonans. And so that means over half of the workers in the state can't even access unpaid leave. The numbers are even worse for access to paid leave. We just put out new data today finding that about 80% of working people in Arizona, that translates to around 2,893,000 workers don't have access to paid family leave through their employers.
0: Wow. Okay. Okay. So the argument that you'll often hear that like, we don't need government to cover this because employers cover this doesn't quite
3: hold water. Yeah. And when we, we also have published data looking at employer provision of paid leave over time, and it's been a pretty steady line. The way it looks is the employers that are inclined to provide this for their workers and more importantly can afford to which tends to squeeze out a lot of small and medium-sized businesses that just can't afford it without a bigger program Mm -hmm. they're already providing it Um, the tax credits other incentives that have been tried to encourage businesses to provide this haven't really moved the needle to cover more people
0: Mm. So things do seem to be changing, at least on a state level today and in recent years. Um, I know you're a part of that effort. Your organization does work on this front, clearly. But I wonder if you can sort of put this into context for us. Like, how many states seem to be adopting and putting into place their own kind of paid family leave laws to make up for this gap?
3: The momentum has been tremendous. California was the first state to enact a paid family medical leave program. But in the years since, uh, many states have followed its lead, especially since the COVID 19 pandemic. Uh, we've seen a lot of momentum in states realizing that it's just not possible to <laughs> expect all your workers um, to never get sick, to never have a need to take time off of work, and that. Um, it's in the best interest for workers, for businesses, for the economy of the state to create a comprehensive program for all workers in their states. Mm-hmm. Uh, today, we have 14 states, including Washington, D.C. They have comprehensive paid family medical leave programs for the workers in their states. And you know California's program has existed for about 20 years now. Uh, we've seen that these programs are... Um, sustainable. They're able to meet the needs of workers. Businesses have not been harmed by them. In fact, they really report some positive benefits. Um, And so we've seen a ton of momentum. And even in this year are expecting even more states to pass um, paid family medical leave policies.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about how these programs are paid for this kind of thing. Arizona, as a measure, a bill introduced by Democrats in the state legislature here to do this. They're a minority party in our state that kind of rarely gets to move its own legislation forward. But the bill here would create a statewide paid family and medical leave program would be funded by both the employer and employee contributions. Is that a common approach like how do most states fund this?
3: That is pretty common. Um, it tends to be you know, a social insurance policy model where uh, the workers and the employers pay in. And the amount of contributions tends to be pretty manageable and pretty small. We had a hearing in front of um, the Senate Finance Committee a few months back, and there was a farmer from Oregon where they have a state Program in place that's a similar model of contributions from the employer and the employee. This farmer was saying that it was pretty minimal, the amount that he had to put in, and compared it to routine maintenance of a truck.
0: I'm sure that's a lot of the pushback you get, though, politically and also in the business world, right? That you don't want to put extra costs on employers, particularly small businesses who don't have large margins to work with.
3: Right. But we see on the flip side that without you know, these state programs or without a national program, small businesses tend to not have the resources to be able to afford to provide this benefit otherwise.
0: What is happening on the national front? There was talk of some movement on this in Congress to try to get a federal law passed. Is that stalled?
3: It's not stalled. In fact, um, I think we've seen increasing interest from uh, unlikely partners since we got the closest that we've come um, with Build Back Better to a national program. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, we were one vote away from a national paid family medical leave program under um, Build Back Better. And rather than losing all of that progress, we've seen gains since then and increased momentum and interest. And It's not just among Democrats. There are two bipartisan working groups in Congress right now, one on the House side and one on the Senate side. We also Mm -hmm. have legislation. um, The Family Act is in the House and the Senate, and that follows some of the best principles that stakeholders and have come up with and that we've seen from the state examples of what a really strong national policy would need to look like to cover uh, as many folks as possible.
0: Mm -hmm. A lot to watch for on that front. That is Sharita Gruberg, Vice President for Economic Justice at the National Partnership for Women and Families, joining us to talk more about paid family leave efforts here and around the country. Sharita, thank you for coming on. I appreciate you taking the time. Thanks so much for having me.
1: Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody.
0: And I'm Lauren Gilger. Coming up, a scientist explains how we can deal with rat problems without resorting to poison.
1: But first, leaders from 12 cities across the country gathered in L.A. recently to talk about common problems and to try to find solutions. The cities are all along I-10, from Los Angeles to Jacksonville, Florida, and include Phoenix and Tucson, as well as El Paso, Houston, New Orleans, and Tallahassee. It's part of a group known as Tenacross, which calls itself an observatory for the future. Duke Ryder is its director. He's also senior advisor to the president of ASU. He stopped by the studio recently to talk about what he heard at the most recent gathering. And we started with whether there was any consensus
4: about what to do about issues like water, heat, and climate. And you just hit on the origins of the Tenacross project. So it is looking at the I-10 quarter from California to Florida and indeed, we are looking for those common denominator issues and they evolve things that you would expect like heat. This is the hottest part of the country. Water, either too much or too little, whether you're in the Gulf states or out here in the desert, or let's say energy. How are we going to produce the energy of the future? That's true across the country and particularly in the I-10 corridor, which we would say is on the front lines of climate change.
1: So what did you hear from folks both in the West, sort of in the the middle part of the state and on the East Coast about how they're trying to handle some of these issues and maybe some of the challenges that while the specifics are
4: different, sort of the underlying concerns are the same? That's exactly right. It's the issues of leadership, whether it's the national, state, local level, how do we make policy, funding for projects. Infrastructure, for example, which is in the news. So whether you're in a dry climate or a wet climate, whatever that might be, these other fundamental things, how do we make decisions about the future is what brings people together. And they often enjoy sharing anecdotes about their local conditions, but really want to understand how you, from another part of the country, are solving your problems and what they can learn from that.
1: Did you find that folks from the cities in Arizona, specifically like Phoenix and Tucson, I know that there's a lot of communication, a lot of collaboration with cities in California, especially in areas like Mm -hmm. heat and water. Did you find that the representatives from those two places, from Southern California and from Arizona, like
4: are we still on the same page with each other to the extent that we think we are? Well, the other reason why we picked this geography is it has some fascinating uh, boundaries, state boundaries in particular. So this area includes the three largest states in the country. California, Texas, and Florida. They have different notions about what the role of state government is, maybe even what democracy is. But when it gets down to the fundamentals like water and how do we use groundwater? What's the future of cities and how they're going to have access to the resources they need? Or let's say between our two states, agriculture, and we obviously share the Colorado River. We can find many common denominator issues. But we also have really different ways of looking at them, which is useful to articulate And learn from each other.
1: I'm curious how, like when you look at a place like Florida versus a place like California, you know, two states that their state governments are pretty much on the opposite ends of the spectrum. How do you try to bring them together to even sort of agree on
4: on what the facts are that you're talking about? I will admit that we're not going to be the ones to bring them together. Although, again, anecdotally, I will tell you when we heard that Governor Newsom and Governor DeSantis wanted to have a debate. Yeah. We volunteered to host it and we thought the Alamo would be the perfect place to do it, <laughs> halfway between the two sticks. What a great place. That didn't turn out to be the case. But but getting them in conversation and what can they learn about the things that they're each addressing? And we started off our summit, if you looked at the agenda with Ron Brownstein mm-hmm. from CNN and The Atlantic, simply to talk about, if you will, the politics of the moment and how we're going to find a way to come together because the issues that we are addressing in the energy transition. Where are we going to find enough water? How are we going to address heat issues? We're going to have to agree on common terms about governance itself.
1: When we often hear so much about how the national politics is not necessarily the politics you see on the city level. Is that true? Is that what you find when you talk about these specific issues?
4: That's a real thing, and uh, we represent in the Ten Across Project. We've looked at the twelve major metro areas. And of course we look at the states, we look at counties, other ways of of organizing ourselves. But it's absolutely true that cities have a sense of mission. Uh, You often see blue cities in red states. Mm -hmm. But the mayor can do things, whoever that may be, whether it's a strong mayor, a form of government or not. Cities are on the leading edge of innovation. I might even say that they are uh, the the future of democracy in many ways. And so we really start with cities. We have all their chief resilience officers, for example. Most cities have them today. And get them all together, they don't care about politics. They have become a really well-organized 10-across network because what they have to share is absolutely uh, convertible from one place to another. I imagine, though, some of the specifics might be different, right? The specifics are, of course, different. Uh, You know, we we live in, for example, we know here in Phoenix, the hottest city in the country or nearly so. That may not be true of New Orleans, which has much greater humidity, for Mm -hmm. example. But the impact on people who may be in lesser conditions, including the homeless, you can share strategies about how to handle excessive heat or heat and humidity. So even though the conditions on the ground are different, the ways of taking a problem apart and finding solutions, absolutely similar. Did you find that there are particular cities who are taking approaches to some
1: of these problems that maybe you hadn't thought of or some majority of the other city officials hadn't thought of
4: that people are like, huh, that could really work for us too? Just yesterday we were on the on a Zoom with the Chief Resilience Officer of Jacksonville. And she is working with our colleagues at the Water Institute, which is based in Baton Rouge, who in turn are doing some collaborative projects with us. The Water Institute is helping Jacksonville to build a a program, an algorithm that discusses where flooding is going to occur, but not just the water component of that. What about the wind? What Mm. about tides? What about other things which are often not part of a way of comprehensively looking at a water issue? Well, that model could be used in other cities, but the building of the model could be used to look at dry conditions as well uh, if the model works in a certain way. So yeah, we can absolutely learn from our peers in different places. So when you leave these summits, how do you feel about
1: some of the issues that were discussed and sort of the regional approach that you're trying to foster here?
4: Yeah. At the core of Tenacross is the idea that probably no society in history has ever been able to contemplate the future the way that we can. So if we can see where things are going, whether that's about water – the way we build cities and heat or energy or other things, we have a certain obligation to get after what we need to address. So we try to put together people at these summits who can exchange ideas who are maybe coming from different backgrounds. People who might be expert in insurance, which is a big deal in California and elsewhere, with maybe a chief heat officer, with maybe an engineer and see what comes of that. And so what comes out of our summits frequently and it's happening again right now are collaborations, Partnerships, which would not have happened were we not putting people together in the way that we carefully curate these discussions. What excited you
1: most coming out of that?
4: Um, there was great enthusiasm for, of all things, the insurance panel. Huh. Because whether you're in Florida, which is greatly impacted by right. insurance issues, Louisiana, California, I think there was a little bit of a sense that, Cali- that insurance might save us. That maybe market forces will demand that we live smarter in places that aren't threatened and therefore we'll do the right things because it's going to cost us if we don't. And I think the insurance people we had there, we had the former insurance commissioner of California, we had the former CEO of Munich Re, they were saying, yeah, not so much. Be careful. You still have to make decisions, people, society, cities, states, about doing this. We can't keep coming to the rescue. So, it's going to be a joint effort between what we do with Market Forces and what you need to do to think about your, again, future, which you can know. All right. That is Duke Ryder, founder of Ten Across,
1: among many other things. Duke, always good to see you. Thank you. Nice to see you, Mark.
0: Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger.
1: And I'm Mark Brody. State lawmakers across the country, including some in Arizona, are looking at ways to protect kids from the impacts of social media. The Florida legislature, for example, is moving a bill that would ban kids younger than 16 from using social media platforms with addictive features, regardless of whether the parents say it's okay or not. Lawmakers in states like Utah, California, and Arkansas have also crafted measures on the topic, some of which have been challenged in court. A federal judge recently blocked a law in Ohio that would have required social media platforms to get a parent's okay before their teen could open a new account. Last year, a federal judge blocked a California law called the Age-Appropriate Design Code Act, which has led states interested in regulating in this area to look for different approaches. With me to talk about what some of those look like is Danny Weiss, Chief Advocacy Officer at Common Sense Media. And Danny, broadly speaking, are there different sort of umbrella approaches states are taking in terms of trying to regulate social media usage for residents under 18?
5: Yeah, there are a number of different approaches that states are taking. Um, Some of this has been in the works for the last couple of years, and it's just going forward even further in 2024. So I would break them down into a few categories. Uh, One of them is known as the age appropriate design uh, that is um, asking for technology to be designed with kids and teens in mind. California passed that into law in 2022. Uh, and then the technology companies sued, and that is currently being uh, reviewed in court. Um, another approach is more what I would say is protectionist, where, for instance, in places like Utah and Arkansas, they, the laws that were passed there says the technology is really not appropriate for kids and teens up to a certain age, and it puts parents in control of deciding whether or not teens under 16 would be allowed on social media and would ban altogether teens under 13 uh, from being on social media the law in arkansas um, has also been attacked by the technology companies has been sued and is currently uh, on hold and i believe there's a lawsuit pending uh, in utah Um, there's uh, another approach uh, which is that says that technology companies design their products in such a way to engage kids so intensely and drive them in such unintended and negative directions that those companies should be held liable for the way they design their products, not for the content, but for the way that the platforms are designed. And there's Just one last example I would give you of an approach is uh, with regard to um, privacy. Enhancing data privacy protection for young people online is really uh, the first line of defense in terms of mitigating harms from social media, because the less data that you store, collect, share and sell about kids, the less valuable the algorithms will be.
1: So you mentioned some of the legal action in terms of Arkansas and Utah and California, and, and a judge has already ruled that uh, California's law uh, violates the First Amendment. So I'm wondering if states are looking at some of these lawsuits and the approaches that have led to them and are trying to maybe find workarounds or, or take a different approach that, that might be okay by the courts?
5: Exactly, you're exactly right about that. The, um, the First Amendment in the United States uh, compared with speech laws in places like the United Kingdom and the European Union, both of which the UK and the EU have been very active in these spaces, but they don't have the American Constitution and the American First Amendment. So, the point of view that the companies take, which we disagree with, is that everything that they do on their platforms is free speech, not just their ability to say something. But the algorithm, they are arguing, is a First Amendment protected uh, action. This is an issue that is going to end up at the Supreme Court in one form or another. Um, So what some people are trying to do is to target legislation so that it really gets around content, gets away from content as much as possible and focuses on. Uh, design and structure and then you would then have a fight is design and structure first amendment or not negligence is potentially an excellent avenue for states to pursue
4: Does it
1: seem as though there's any middle ground, any compromise to be had here between policymakers and the tech companies? I mean, you mentioned the lawsuits. Those are all brought by tech companies. Like, is there any way to craft some kind of policy that would prevent or try to prevent some of the dangers to kids under 18 from being on social media that the tech companies would be okay with?
5: I think what's happening is if you asked the tech companies, they would say, of course there is a middle ground and they would say, we support the following things. But then when it comes to an actual bill, almost none of them support an actual bill. One area that's a little bit different is um, just as, as people know, uh, there was a recent hearing uh, with the big tech CEOs in Washington. And uh, in that hearing, some of the tech CEOs were asked if they support a federal bill, the Kids Online Safety Act. Snap announced uh, prior to the hearing and at the hearing that they support the Kids Online Safety Act, uh, which would, again, require uh, companies to design their platforms better. Twitter, now known as X, also said they support uh, the Kids Online Safety Act. And then Meta and Discord and TikTok did not say that they support it. So. There could be a little bit of a break in the dam, but at the state level, there's two trade associations, NetChoice and TechNet, and they basically oppose every regulatory change that is being proposed.
1: Do you think the fact that there is federal legislation, does that maybe help a little bit? Like might tech companies, might it even be better for advocates like yourself if there was one federal law as opposed to sort of a, a patchwork of state laws?
5: We strongly support a federal approach to this, but we don't want to give up the opportunity for states to be the engines of innovation that they always are. So what our recommendation is, is that Congress absolutely should pass a comprehensive data privacy law. The United States is one of the few uh, leading countries in the world that doesn't have one. There should be a comprehensive data privacy law, and there should be a first ever guardrails for kids on social media law. The issue then becomes, are those federal laws going to be the minimum, which is true for most consumer protection laws, the federal government establishes a floor, and then states can go above that if they want something stronger, or is Congress going to establish a ceiling and say, in 2024, we're going to pass these laws and no state may take any action that is stronger than what we've done.
1: Right. So, understanding that crystal balls are often extraordinarily cloudy in this regard. I'm curious like <laughs> when you look ahead, you know, for the, you know, the next 6 to 12 months. Like what what do you think is is going to happen? Like what do you think states are going to be able to do? What do you think the feds are going to do? Maybe what do you think courts are going to do?
5: I think you'll see a number of states pass new legislation in 2024. A number of court cases will continue to go forward. There are several that are in process now. Um, you will, I believe, you will see at least the United States Senate pass federal legislation, and then the pressure will be on the U.S. House of Representatives. Um, so there's going to be a lot of action on this. And of course, it's an election year, and right. at some point, the politics around the election will take over and maybe drown out some of this other activity. But for the first, for the rest of this quarter and into the second quarter of 2024, I expect to see quite a bit of activity.
1: All right. That is Danny Weiss, Chief Advocacy Officer at Common Sense Media. Danny, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody.
0: And I'm Lauren Gilger. And here is an odd one for you, Mark. We're going to spend the next few minutes talking about how to control rat infestations. All right. Not
1: your typical show content there, but let's hear it. <laughs> All
0: right. So if you've ever lived in a big city, you know this can be a problem. One thing is true. Where there is food and litter, there will be rats. Remember New York's infamous pizza rat or the rats that overtook Rome's famed Coliseum last summer?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. We also, of course, have roof rats here in Arcadia and other parts of the valley as
0: well. Uh, That's right. When infestations happen, communities usually put out poison. But our next guest has a different approach that she says has fewer unintended consequences. Flagstaff scientist Dr. Loretta Meyer is the co-founder of the nonprofit Wisdom Good Works, and she's trying to change rodent control by controlling their fertility. She told me it was something of an accidental scientific discovery. Here's our conversation.
6: And that's how most uh, scientific discoveries occur. Uh, I was uh, actually working in women's health, and my focus was heart disease in postmenopausal women. And in order to truly understand that, we use animal models and and these kinds of clinical studies. And I needed a non-reproductive mouse. And uh, typically... Mm. Uh, That doesn't occur in nature. They're reproductive until the day they die. So I teamed up with a colleague, Dr. Pat Hoyer, and she was investigating a compound that caused the loss of eggs from the ovary. Mm -hmm. And typically, that's what menopause is. You have no more eggs. So I was able to do that and reported in American Heart And uh, then got a call from colleagues in Australia, actually, and uh, they basically said, look, you can do this in a mouse. You could probably do something like this in a rat. If we could reduce the population of rats in Southeast Asia alone, we could just by 5%. We could feed millions of people.
0: Right, so that's an interesting point to make, right? Like because you don't think about rats and like the world's food supply, but they they consume or (laughs) contaminate a lot of it, right?
6: Oh yes. Um, When I was in Rome, they told me that they would lose approximately twenty five percent of all the grain that was shipped, like from the United States into Northern Africa, Mm -hmm. and that's food that was just lost. Yeah,
0: I mean, so that's really interesting because there's that one side of it where where it's good to control the population of rodents. But then on the other side, like, they're important in keeping a balanced environment, right? Like, they can be important in seed dispersal, pollination, things like that?
6: Absolutely. Think of the rodent as a link in the food chain. Mm-hmm. So if you poison that rodent, you're adding poison into the food chain and then everything up from the chain, such as our beautiful raptors and and mountain lions, or so I could, you know, you can just go on, they become poisoned. But the other thing is when those rodents defecate and that gets into the soil, that poison will persist in soil and water. So the issue is they need more tools. And that's why I traded in my white lab coat for some field boots and <laughs> hit the road to do what I could do. <laughs> yeah, so
0: I mean it's it's a it's a funny thing to end up accidentally sort of in like you know pest and rat control, but it's important. <laughs> so tell us exactly how this works. like is it a pellet you feed them? Is it something they eat how do How do you get this into their bodies?
6: So what we have developed now for wisdom good works is little pellets they're completely organic i could probably find most of the compounds in your pantry Mm -hmm. and uh, they eat these pellets and as they consume the pellets they then stop their reproduction cycles Mm -hmm. and that takes uh so i have thousands of data points on on these pellets And they always follow the same pattern. They start eating it, get used to eating it, increase, and then it decreases down to a low maintenance level. Hmm. And that's the important part. You see, when you kill, you're never going to get them all. Mm -hmm. Either they all don't eat it or they're resistant to it, to poison. And so, those animals you don't kill, they reproduce. Right. At an extraordinary rate. You know, two animals, 15,000 progeny (laughs) over their eight month lifetime. Come on. Wow.
0: Okay. Okay. So, this sounds like it's a more effective way of actually controlling the population of these kinds of pests in the end. Like, you're not going to have nearly as many as you would even if you were trying to kill them.
6: Exactly. But the most important part of this strategy is it's sustainable. Hmm. You see, if you kill, they rebound and here comes the pest manager again and then they rebound and they come again. So this just takes them down and holds that level exquisitely low in balance with the environment.
0: Let me ask you a little bit about the implementation of this. Like, you, you've you said you're testing it out. It's being used in various places. It's open source now. You've created this nonprofit so that people can essentially adopt this technique, this, this formula, right? Where else is right. it being
3: used?
6: Well, right now we're using it uh, on the East Coast. In Boston, we have uh, done a project in Jamaica Plain. Uh, We've done uh, uh, community gardens in zoos. We're trying to test in different uh, locations, animal rescues. We've been invited to the Navajo reservation. Uh, We've carried this to the Galapagos Islands. I think where we are right now is, I have enough data, extraordinary amount of data, that we're ready now to make this available to anyone who wants a pilot project. And uh, again, as I said, we're a nonprofit, so we don't do the commercial sales, but that's in the works with Mm -hmm. some very fine partners. Interesting.
0: Okay. So, yeah, tell us a little bit about what's next and where you'd like to see this kind of technology being implemented.
6: We have a project we want to start in Tanzania, uh, one in Germany, one in Great Britain, and, of course, back to Southeast Asia. And so I think where my vision here and for all of us at, at Good Works, we want to see people use it. We want to see them embrace the entire concept. We would like to expand to show how... Not killing, not using a lethal approach to management of any population. You know, whether it's wild deer or elk or stray dogs, that this is the way for us to have a balanced environment.
0: That was my conversation with Dr. Loretta Mayer, Flagstaff scientist and co-founder of Wisdom Good Works, about her work to control rodent populations using fertility control. For more, head to our website, theshow.kjzz.org.
1: We have heard about collections of old shoes, old lamps, and old bottles, but today we're revisiting something that's been around for much longer. Three leaves, or pages, from the Quran are on view in the rare book room at Burton Bar Central Library in Phoenix. The leaves, along with many of the other books in the collection, were left to the library in one donor's will. The leaves are dated to 1106, 1200, and 1327. Han Sien Liu, Assistant Professor of Islamic Studies at ASU, talked more about the artifacts with the show.
7: My name is Han Sien Liu. I'm an uh, Assistant Professor of Islamic Studies at Arizona State University. We are in the Rare Books Collection in the Burton Bar Central Library. This is a room where they house a lot of very rare books, manuscripts that the Burton Bar Library owns. So we have three leaves from the Qur'an. Uh, The Qur'an is the holy scripture of uh, Muslims. This is universally regarded as the scripture uh, in in Islam. So these are three different leaves uh, from the Qur'an. They're all from different time periods. They're all also very different uh, in nature. It's very important to note that many of these leaves, when they were produced... uh, of course they were all produced as one book uh, but over time you know when when these qurans change hands and they get passed on from one generation to another these qurans get taken apart and over time you have people who own a page or two and eventually they travel through different regions through different markets uh different antique fairs and then they eventually get sold uh, to different institutions this leaf contains parts of two different chapters from the Quran. Most of it consists of uh, chapter 55 from the Quran. Uh, It's a chapter titled Al-Rahman, which means the merciful. Most of what you have here describes the garden of paradise, uh, what believers can actually see if and when they enter paradise. And then the other chapter, which you have only the very beginning of it, titled Al-Waqiyah. It it means something, an event which is coming. So it's basically talking about the end of days. It's dated to 1200. It is written in a script called the Maghribi script. Maghrib refers to the Western Islamic world. And by by Western, I mean uh, North Africa, uh, as well as Spain. Spain was under Islamic rule for uh, a period of time. And so this script is very unique to that region. Uh, so it was likely produced either in North Africa or in Spain. The main verses are in in this black brownish ink. The chapter headings are in red. And then in the margins, uh, you have some scribblings, very likely commentary uh, on the particular verse itself. A lot of uh, Islamic manuscripts will... Um, many of them have these so-called marginalia because they've been passed down generation to generation, and and so you have different students who would write on the margins, who just produce some commentary on the main work itself. Okay, so here we have a leaf that is dated to 1106. This leaf is much bigger. It has a lot more ornamentation on it. As you can see, the, the gold flecks that um, that is very present on on the leaf itself, so which indicates that uh, it was likely produced by uh, or at least sponsored uh, or commissioned by a very rich patron, very wealthy patron, to be able to afford this level of ornamentation. This is called the Thuluth uh, script, which is a different script compared to what we we've, we've seen before. Similar to the to the previous leaf, we also have parts of two chapters of the Quran. Chapter 29, which is called the Spider, and chapter 30, which is called the Byzantines. Many commentators of the, on the Quran have interpreted this chapter as envisioning a, a kind of commonality between Muslims and Christians. This one is from 1327. As you can see, the font is much smaller, and so because of that, you can pack more words into one single page and so that's why with the other leaves uh, you get partial chapters but with this leaf you get you you actually get a full chapter you also have these very beautiful gold flowers that separate the different verses within the chapter the script is a different script this is a script called the naskh script it's a script that is also still widely used today uh, mainly because it is more easy to read for general people. It's often very rare, I think, for libraries to get Quran leaves uh, with different scripts usually. And, and, and I think this is a very, very nice sampling of the different scripts that were used actually in the Islamic world in the pre-modern period. That was Han and Lu, Assistant Professor of Islamic Studies at
1: ASU.
0: do it for this tuesday edition of the show we will of course be back with you again tomorrow morning with much more don't forget to follow us on instagram we are at kjzz the show for mark brody i'm lauren gilger thanks for joining us
1: That's it for this episode of The Show Podcast. To find out more about the stories from today or other episodes, visit theshow.kjzz.org. And you can subscribe to KJZZ's The Show on your favorite podcasting site. I'm Mark Brody. Thanks for listening today.